Today's scripture reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 21. You can turn to page 6 of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have, then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables and said, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thank you, Miss Crystal. All right. Let's pray together before we take a look at this. God, we ask with great thanksgiving for you to speak to us. That's a bold claim to believe that we might somehow spiritually hear the very voice of God. But that is what your word tells us to believe. 
that we hear you, that you speak to us personally, that your word is alive, that it can cut to the heart, that it can give us life, that it can save us. And so please come and do all these things. Uh, Maybe even surprise us. Um, Pray your help for me in in my weakness, limitations. Uh, Pray your blessing upon your whole church today. Give us much grace for your glory, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we are today continuing in our short three-week sermon series on the topic of politics, and we've entitled it Faith and Public Life. And last week, we began looking at this topic, and before looking at what politic is, we started by exploring what it isn't. And so we looked at Daniel chapter 3 and explored this important theme of political idolatry. Uh, We talked about how we tend to, we tend to turn political party or ideology or policy or even candidates, we turn towards them with a near religious devotion. We turn to politics and political solutions to today's society's problems almost as our Savior. And this is true even for professing Christians on both the right and on the left, even those who profess Christ as Savior. If you say, well, how do you know that this might be true of me? We saw that one of the symptoms of this political idolatry is rage, fury towards your opponents, towards those with whom you disagree, towards those who refuse to bow as you would bow. This rage that was embodied by King Nebuchadnezzar threatening a fiery furnace to all those who do not worship his throne. And the alternative we saw In the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their faithfulness was a refusal to bow our calling, a refusal to bow that was also manifest in a respect for those with whom you disagree, even in the face of deep disagreement, even in the face of injustice that is being inflicted upon you. A second way in which you show this sort of refusal and faithfulness is maybe surprisingly, a readiness to lose. Because if you must win, if you must have your political way, then surely you've already bowed your knee. Well, today we're continuing in our study and continuing in the book of Daniel, flipping back a few pages now to Daniel chapter 1. And the first couple of verses actually set the story for us. First, we're told in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is a a snapshot of the story of the exile of God's people. Around the 6th century, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came and pillaged the city of Jerusalem. Destroyed the city, the temple, people's homes. Many were killed. 
Thousands were taken captive and deported from their homelands, ripped from their homes and their livelihoods, and sent off to Babylon. This is the backdrop to the entirety of the book of Babylon, uh, the book of Daniel, the story of a young man who was in exile. Secondly, we're also told in verse 2 that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. In other words, this exile, it was God ultimately who did it. That might sound like a strange thing, but this exile actually took place, we're told in God's word, as a form of God's judgment. God had warned his people about their idolatry, their false worship, their rebellion against God. And so exile was threatened as punishment. Time and again, they were warned and called back by the love of God to repentance. And time and again, the people refused. So just as it was promised, it was God himself who sent these people, his people, into exile. But here's the interesting thing about what God's people experienced as they were sent in exile. This is what was interesting about how Babylon went about in its conquest of nations. Uh, What was the best way to subjugate a people and the best way to promote the interests of the empire? Their answer was make the captives fall in love with Babylon. Uh, Teach them the language. Show them the best of Babylonian literature. Give them the best of your food. Put into their ears, into their hearts, the best of your music. The the, the Beyonce's of Babylon, as it were. And the best way to make the masses fall in love, well, you win the hearts of the influencers, the movers and shakers of the captive nation, especially young, rising stars amongst the people. This was a strategy of of cultural reprogramming, changing the hearts and minds, winning the hearts and minds of a captive people, don't miss it, for the purposes of subjugating them in order to be able to rule over them more or less peacefully so that the emperor, the king, might remain in control. And this is where the main characters of this story fit in. Last week in chapter 3, we met Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here today, we also meet Daniel, after whom the book is named. Verse 6 tells us that they were chosen for this special, shall we call it, three-year fellowship program, right? This training period that had a nefarious purpose, to be sure, but at least included some pleasantries being taught being wined and dined, and then at the end of that term, entering into the king's service, as we're told in verse 5. But the twist in the plot, as we heard it read, comes when these four faithful Jewish young men resist. Quietly, respectfully, uh, nevertheless truly. In verse 8, we're told, but Daniel resolved. He put it in his heart not to defile himself this way with the royal food and wine. 
What that's referring to is, of course, the food and wine that was being offered to them would have been offered up as a sacrifice to the Babylonian gods. Daniel felt like that would have been a compromise to his faith, a form of worship of a false god, if he were to participate in these feasts, in these meals. And so he told the chief official, so can I strike with you a deal? Can I request that you give us not the meat that's being served, but only vegetables and only water for 10 days? The chief official, after some hesitation, even fear for getting caught of compromising, negotiating with a captive like these young men, finally gave in, agreed, and he said, and, uh, let's try it out and let's see what happens. Verse 15, we're told at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and the three other friends that he was with actually looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Finally, at the climax of the story in verse 19, we're told King Nebuchadnezzar found none equal to these four. And so they entered into the king's service. Now, this word exile is a little bit of a metaphor that we might be able to use for understanding a Christian's calling in public life. We're called to what Daniel, in fact, modeled so well, what we might call faithfulness in exile. See, faithfulness in exile means living with a dual identity, the dual identity as citizens of God's kingdom on the one hand, and yet also resident aliens in this world on the other. Dual identity as citizens of God's kingdom and resident aliens in this world. Because as Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. This is where our identity is grounded in Christ, in our heavenly status before him. And yet also we find in 1 Peter 2.11 language like this, calling us sojourners and exiles, spiritually speaking, in this world and in this nation. 2 Corinthians 5.20 calls us ambassadors for Christ, being sent into a different nation, a different culture, a different world, but belonging to another, foreign servants of the king. And so, of course, those of you who actually are today here immigrants or asylum seekers or maybe green card holders, you actually might have an advantage over the rest of us, in embodying this very real reality for yourself and maybe more easily being able to translate the spiritual meaning of these things when the Bible calls us citizens and yet resident aliens, even exiles. See, faithfulness in exile means having the mentality, the mindset, even the identity, I'm not from here, but I am fully present here. I'm not from here, but I am fully present here. Well, what does that mean more practically? I want to give you three quick things. We'll open it up for Q&A afterwards. Let's learn a little bit together. What does this mean, faithfulness in exile? Number one, faithfulness in exile means faithfulness in weakness. 
faithfulness and weakness. You see, as the story opens, it appears like Israel's God has been defeated. That's what verse 2 is all about when it says that Nebuchadnezzar took articles from the temple of God and carried them off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. I mean, this is a clear exercise of not only political, but on the surface, religious power. I have ransacked your God's house and put his plunder and belongings into my God's house. Guess who won? But of course, one of the great lessons of this passage is that even when God might look defeated on the surface, in actuality, he is secretly and powerfully at work. Not defeated at all. How, in fact, did Daniel and his friends get this vegetable exemption? We're told in verse 9, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. And how was it that they passed this 10-day test where afterwards they were also displaying knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning? We're told in verse 17, God gave it to them. You see, even if on the surface of things, things might be looking like defeat, at the heart of it, God never loses. At the heart of it, God never relinquishes his power. He might just go covert. He just might work in less seen and visible ways. And those who are faithful in exile, even today, need to learn to believe this. And to know that even outward seeming defeat and weakness is never the end of the story. And in fact, is never even the true story. You see, yes, we are called to be salt and light in this world. We are called to to actually promote the values and priorities of God's kingdom, to even to seek to be of Christian influence upon our culture and the laws of our city and of our nation, yes. But what we must not forget is that God's purpose is are still advanced even when his people are weak, even in apparent defeat. So what that means then is that followers of Christ don't need to kick down political doors in order to get their way, but can actually trust in the providence of God to direct their steps. And it means that Christians, therefore, don't need to pursue immoral means to reach supposedly moral ends, making grave compromises because the stakes are just too high and we can't afford to lose. No, God has never lost, not one time yet. And it means that we don't, therefore, need to lust after or grasp after power and influence in order for God's will to advance. And we also don't need to to freak out when it appears like Christians lose influence. There may be sometimes something to lament about that, but a Christian can hang on to the promises of God 
with trust, and with hope. See, faithfulness in exile means faithfulness in weakness and even in the margins. And Christians who believe this story dare not believe the lie that it is impossible to live out Christian faithfulness even from the margins of society. And dare not believe the lie that the only objective that we have before us is to move us from margins to center, no matter the cost. Because the Christian church, don't we know, has always flourished most from the margins. When we bear weakness, when the cross, the death of Christ, shines most clearly in his weak people, so that in our weakness, the power of his grace might be made perfect. But notice how Daniel still participates in this program. He's still engaged with the state, even with Babylon, and yet he refuses to compromise. He neither fully assimilates into Babylonian culture, nor does he withdraw from Babylon And let's take a look at each of those for our next two points. Number two, faithfulness in exile means not assimilating, but rather resisting Babylon. See, Daniel resolved that he would not eat the food and drink that was set before him in verse 8. He would not fully, completely assimilate. He knew who he was. In other words, he refused to allow the reprogramming of his fundamental identity in God. And that, in fact, was Babylon's goal, as we talked about last week and already in the beginning of this sermon. The reprogramming of the fundamental identity of their captive people. One place that we see that actually is in the way that they would give new names to their captives. We see this in verse 7. These young Jewish men, their names were changed. They had Hebrew names. They were given Babylonian names. Daniel is a name that means God is my judge. He was given the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel, the Babylonian God, protects. Hananiah, his name means the Lord is gracious. He was given the name Shadrach, which means inspired by Aku, the moon god. Mishael is a name that means in Hebrew, who is like our God. His name was changed to Meshach, belonging to Aku, another Babylonian God. Azariah, that name means the Lord helps. Abednego means servant of the goddess Ishtar. Of course, these four men had no choice but to receive those names. They were forced upon them. And of course, the pressures in some ways are no different even today in some parts of the world, literally name-changing, but here maybe figuratively, spiritually. Pressures that we might face to remake you, me, in the image of another political or cultural entity. It, It might be new names like not Meshach, but Maga Shack. Not a Bendigo, but maybe a Bend a Bernie Bro. 
where you are again and again being called to embody as your core identity something or someone or some group or some view of the world and how our government needs to be run. The calling, of course, like Daniel, is to refuse to allow the reprogramming of our fundamental identity in God. Because exiles, if we are to take on the mantle and identity of an exile, exiles know they come from a different land. An ambassador is someone who represents the priorities and values of her king and kingdom. Let me say that again. An ambassador is someone that embodies, represents the priorities and values not of the present culture and world, but of the one from which they come, namely the kingdom of God and the King Jesus. And what that means is that exiles, therefore, aren't surprised when those priorities come into conflict. We also don't pump our fists in the air when they come into conflict. We expect it. What else would we expect? We're not angry when Babylon acts like Babylon, though we might lament it, even weep tears over it. But we know that Babylonians will be Babylonians. It means openly acknowledging as exiles that no one party or platform or person can perfectly embody all of God's priorities. And so we need to stop expecting that to be the case, and we also need to stop demanding or expecting that others believe that the totality of one's Christian faith can be found in one allegiance, one identity apart from that of God, to party, to ideology, to group, to country. And it means that if your loyalty is to Christ and to his word, first and foremost, that you should find yourself increasingly with a personal platform of convictions that don't easily fit into the world's boxes. Where maybe you feel called to protect life at its most vulnerable, life in the womb, and also life that is threatened daily by violence and by poverty where you take seriously more and more God's call for his people to steward his creation and also his call to steward our and our nation's material resources, where we begin to see the importance of protecting religious liberty and conscience as something not to be taken for granted, while also caring about protecting neighbors whose well-being sometimes is harmed in the name of religion. Where you feel compelled to care for refugees, while you also know it's important to care also about being wise about national security. And it means that in all these things that we're acknowledging that even if you hold these moral convictions as derived from God's word, we still need to do the hard work of figuring out how they need to be expressed in the public square. How they may or may not be found in this or that measure of policy. And it also means, of course, refusing to judge your Christian brother or sister 
who in good conscience might decide that the best expression of those very same core convictions might be an expression of policy on the other side of the aisle than yourself. You see, another way to say all this is that the calling to be an exile is a calling to be a Christian with a transcendent voice and a transcendent perspective. It means that you don't always operate or only operate only on the world's terms, which aren't necessarily in and of themselves wrong terms or evil terms, but they're just limited terms. So when you want to talk about important issues of the day, if you only think left and right, only think Republican, Democrat, Green, or other, only think about this candidate or that candidate, you're worldly. And we need to be equipped in terms of knowing how to think first and foremost about how God thinks about these issues. And even more than the issues discreetly themselves, to gain a transcendent perspective, to be able to see what God is doing in the world, how God's heart is being manifest in this world, what God cares about in this fallen world that he has seen fit to redeem by the blood of his own son. A transcendent view of things so that Christians find themselves not simply positioned in the Middle, but rather positioned above the fray. And able to see both left and right, speak to both left and right, critique both left and right, and celebrate both left and right. And if you can't do that, at least to some degree, you have not yet climbed on top of the mountain and found this transcendent perspective. It's also why it's important for a church's pulpit not to become partisan. Not because we don't want to offend people or simply because it's not good to take sides. And not only just because it can be a threat to Christian unity in the church, but because by speaking in a partisan fashion, a church simply loses its prophetic voice. It is no longer speaking with that kingdom perspective that rests both beneath and above all things. The church speaks for God and not for man. I mean, that's the thing about churches simply parroting political talking points from a given party. Because the reality is, is if you're sounding the same as a political rally, why not just go to the latter? When in fact, it's probably a little bit uh, more energizing to your political sensibilities with a fraction of the religious guilt. The church loses its effectiveness when it simply finds itself preaching politics only. And when it only has a voice that sounds just like the world's. When we reclaim this transcendent, exilic perspective, only then, in fact, can we find unity in the midst of political diversity in the church. 
Scott Saul is a wonderful brother, author. He's, uh, he was a retreat speaker of ours a couple of years ago, uh, wrote this a few years ago. Our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom must always exceed our loyalty to an earthly agenda, whether political or otherwise. We should feel at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. Now that's provocative. Because I think a lot of us feel like that's pie in the sky. That's a nice idea, but it just ain't true. What does it mean to acknowledge, together with a Christian brother or sister, that what you hold in common about the most important things, even if you disagree about very important things, very, very important things, but if you share in common the most important things, the ultimate things in life, your God and your sonship and daughtership in Christ, your destiny in eternity, your place in the family of God, your calling on mission to extend God's kingdom wherever you go. Should that not forge among us a deep and abiding unity? We are, every one of us, citizens and ambassadors from the same kingdom even if we labor on different sides of the aisle. You are receiving your orders from the same king. I mean, think about that if we understand that rightly, how ridiculous it is when we treat other Christian brothers and sisters of different, importantly different political persuasions as if they are the enemy. You are ambassadors from the same kingdom, simply laboring on different sides of the aisle, receiving your orders from the same king. And you always have in mind, if you're doing your job, the priorities and interests of the very same kingdom. Thirdly, and to close with this point, faithfulness in exile means not only Assimilating, not assimilating, excuse me, but resisting Babylon, but it also means not withdrawing, but serving Babylon. Faithfulness in exile means not withdrawing, but serving Babylon. We see this in Daniel's willingness to enter into service of an unrighteous king. Serving in an official capacity certainly of an empire whose policies he did not and could not have uniformly supported. But I also want to point out this, that in the time that Daniel was in Babylon, there was a letter that was sent by the prophet Jeremiah, who lived at the same time period, a letter that was sent to exiles, giving them instructions as to how they were to conduct themselves, why they were there in the city. A well-known verse, and you've heard these Words before, even from this pulpit, if you've been with us, but from Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. 
take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What does it mean to be in exile? Hide out bitterly in the quietness of your home. Huddle together only with those that are like-minded with you? No. Promote the good of your neighbors. Promote the good of your neighbors, even those with whom you have deeply held differences. I mean, how should these exiles interact with act and feel towards their Babylonian neighbors with anger, with spite, with a sense of waging a war or withdrawing and holding their breath and hoping to just disappear. Jeremiah says, build homes. Make the city a better place. Build a life there. Do the mundane, ordinary things, planting trees, getting married. Pray for them, for your city, for your nation. Seek their good. You see, what it means to be faithful in exile is simply this. Christians ought to labor for the common good, not just for their own good. Christians are called to love and serve their neighbor, uh, to serve everyone's interests, not just Christian interests. And again, even when their beliefs and convictions sometimes come in conflict with those very same neighbors. Let me put it to you this way. In the case of electoral politics and voting, there should be times when Christians even vote and advocate for what's best for their neighbors, even if it's not best for yourself. There should be times when you actually promote things because you know your neighbors will be better off, even if it comes at great cost to yourself. This is simply not a normal ethic that you'll find outside of the Bible and outside of the best visions of public service and citizenship. To be able to say that as a neighbor, your calling is and always should be, even in public life, to lay down your life for someone else's good. And so the normal ethic of this world to say, these are my rights, these are our needs and our interests, which of course is not in and of itself selfish, can be selfish, self-centered, anti-neighborly, and contrary to the kingdom of God. I'm not saying one should vote in violation of their conscience, but I am saying sometimes you should vote and act in violation of your personal advantage. But it's also important to remember, as 
this passage and specifically these words from Jeremiah 29 remind us and calling us to seek the welfare of our city, of our neighbors, is this reminder that our service to neighbor doesn't only get expressed in the realm of politics. Right? Because Jeremiah didn't say, seek the welfare of your city and therefore head out to the nearest voting booth. Though I think in principle he wouldn't have been opposed to that. But it does stand out. It does draw attention uh, to the careful reader that he's calling them to the most normal, ordinary, daily life kinds of things. The way you eat and where you eat and with whom you eat. The things you plant in your yard. The way you use your time and your money. Uh, the way in which you engage neighborhood life. Your God-given calling to serve your neighbor does not only get expressed in the realm of politics. And one of the great problems that we have in our nation and even in the church is a growing, narrowing of our vision of how public life needs to be lived out. A narrowing of our sense of calling, believing that government and public policy is the only and most important, crucial solution to all of society's ills. And the Bible would say that the government being ordained by God is an important way, especially in the way in which the most vulnerable in society might be protected and promoted. But the Bible would say the government is not the only way. That's not a political take on small government. That's a biblical take on limited government, that God has ordained his world to flourish through a variety of means, the institution of government being only one of them, an important one, but only one. And in fact, Christians are called to be invested to bring about solutions to these very same problems of poverty, of, of family, of human dignity, through community associations, through the work and ministry of churches like ours, through your workplace, one of the most radical places of transformation that you've been called to invest your gifts, time, and energy in, through your families and the witness that is meant to be born through the way you conduct family life, including roommate life and housemate life one with another, the way God has called you also to the marketplace, the way small businesses and commerce is run. Some of the greatest ways that you can impact your city and your nation in the direction of the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God is by investing in these things and not just in matters of federal policy. And in fact, on that note, as it was mentioned to me some years ago in a way that stuck in my mind, uh, someone that said, gosh, the, the, with as much energy that consumes people in this town with federal politics, can you imagine the difference it could make if that same amount of time and energy were poured into city politics, into the local concerns of the District of Columbia, into ANC meetings, into the concerns of your neighborhood, of your ward, of the streets and the people immediately to our left and to our right. See, as a Christian, you are 
not called, it is not your duty just to become a political junkie. I know some of you are saying, you know what, this all sounds good, but I really don't care. But listen, listen, it is your Christian duty to steward the civic blessings, responsibilities, and opportunities that you've been given. And this is just one form of loving your neighbor, an important form, but there are many varieties of forms, and we're called to lay down our lives and serve. And I close with the question, how? Simply how? How do we do this? And the answer is not simply just to be like Daniel, but rather to fix your eyes on the one to whom Daniel points us. The greater than Daniel, the one who was exiled for us, the one who was ejected from the glories of paradise and while on the cross was deported straight into the heart of hell for our sins, political, personal, and otherwise. The one who was exiled spiritually, voluntarily for us because he loved us. Uh, the one who loved neighbor even to the point of death. Uh, the one who refused tribalism, but insisted that he love all people and that his salvation, which he purchased, would be for every one of us, rich and poor, people of every tribe, every tribe, language and nation. This Jesus who said no to ungodliness and resisted that pull and seduction to be a person of Babylon and rather said yes to his sonship before God as he prayed again and again, Father, 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 and I am your son. The Savior who said yes to loving this world even when it appeared as it so often does that God had been defeated as it appeared on the cross that God had been Defeated, and yet all along God was orchestrating the greatest victory, not a political one at all, the greatest victory ever known in the story of our world. This Jesus who embodied the well known verse that for God so loved the world that he gave and he gave and he gave so that we should love and not withdraw but give and give and give. And that we might do so in a way that we would be willing to embrace weakness and not fear the unseenness of God's work in our lives and around us, where we ourselves would, having experienced the love of Christ in this way, might be able to cling to this identity that he's given to us. You're a son of a king, a daughter of a king. And so to give you power to resist the allure of assimilating to sinful culture or to political idolatry. And where having been loved so by the king that was committed not only to loving neighbor, but even those that treated him like an enemy, which is what we did. That through that love, he would give us the power to love neighbor and even enemy. Oh, friends, we need the greater Daniel. We need this Jesus, to so live this life of faithfulness in exile, the joy of this life 
and this calling. God, give us grace to do this well. Let's pray. So we ask that you would give us, Jesus, your love, your servanthood, your neighborly, infinite neighborliness in a way that changes our hearts, that we would love and serve those around us in public life in a way that would dumbfound the world and point all people to yourself. Please do that in us and amongst us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.